Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Jeff. We're glad that you're here. And we're in a sermon series about presence, and we've been going through stories in the Old Testament talking about how God's present. We're, we've, done a, we've done something over years called Where Is God When Life Happens when we, we um, get people up here to talk through where God's been when things have gotten hard in their lives, by and large. And, um, and so we're mixing that this year. And I have, we have um, a couple that's relatively new to the church, Matt and Ashley Noble. You guys can come back up. Um, everybody say, hi, Matt and Ashley. Good job. And uh, they are going to um, share their share their story, and it's, um, we need to put a, a couple, so, so you guys, are, let me, how did I, how did I, you guys grew up in um, Michigan, uh, I'm from Wisconsin, they're close, this is how people up north sound, and I love it, I love it, I love it, um, how long y'all been married? 15 years. 15 years. You have, um, you have two girls. Yep. They are eleven and twelve. Eleven and twelve, and um, and you guys, you met at church. We're going to get to that part of the story. And how did you get to Oak City Church? Uh, basically, I knew John. Uh, it worked. Uh, he, John, had worked with uh, John Fouché. Sorry, uh, worked with one of the uh, one of the pastors I, that we worked with up in Michigan and connected. And yeah, that's how we found you guys. Yeah. And Matt was my sabbatical coach. I had a coach for sabbatical. And you did a great job because I had a great sabbatical. Thank you. It was awesome. All right. I'm going to apologize to them. And I've done this a couple times because this story could take days. We could sit here for days and tell the story. So we're going we're gonna to get what we can in. You guys are going to need to plan to like take them out to lunch or have dinner with them or something and get more of a story because I've talked to them a handful of times and every time there's more there's just there's only so much that you can pack into um, so much time and this is um so I feel like this could have been a short story because it starts with Matt being born with a hole in his heart a VSD I think it's called between his two ventricles or and um, they can fix that with one surgery, um, and, and they, but they, didn't, they weren't able to do that. And you didn't, you didn't know until uh, you were like five, right, that this was a problem? Uh, my parents found out at four months old, but back then, uh, I was born in 1976, uh, and back then they didn't have the technology or the ability to do surgery as a baby like they do now. So they would put off surgery until you were big enough. Uh, so they, they put off surgery until I was five years old to do it. And they, and they did the surgery and thought that it worked. Yes. And that was a couple months later, you passed out at your house. You went into cardiac arrest. Yes. Which, for, a, the, for a, the cardiac arrest is like your heart stops working. Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, and what percentage of people make it through cardiac arrest? Uh, 2% of people survive out of hospital cardiac arrest. And, and that surviving is included even if you come away not fully yourself. Yeah. And... In this story, how many times did you go into, well, did you go into cardiac arrest before the, or outside of the defibrillator? Seven. Seven. Yeah. So, you beat those odds. 
Yes. <laughs> and the first time, your mom did hair in a shop attached to your house. Yep. You go into cardiac arrest, and how, who's, who? She was dresses. doing a nurse's hair, and so she jumped up and revived me. Uh, Every yep. time, someone is right there. So we're going we're gonna to count these um, over the time. So they, they could have fixed it. They, it just didn't, they just didn't do it. It's fine. It's 1981. And uh, they redo the surgery at the University of Michigan. That didn't work. This is the second time you go into a cardiac arrest and they have, to, they have to open you up and massage your heart? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a choice to open me up. I was post-op, had stitches still. They start CPR. Yeah. Uh, and then they have to do cardiac massage to revive me. And that, that was the night then they came to my mom, um, literally covered in my blood, and said, we don't think he's going to make it through the night. Uh, and if he does, he's going to have pretty severe brain damage. And then they fly you to the Mayo Clinic. Yes. In Rochester, yeah. Minnesota. And they do the surgery again. Um, and, they, and they thought they had it. But they what... Um, you end up doing a lot of damage to the heart. Yeah, so after the third surgery in the Mayo Clinic, they said, we got it, you're good, go home and live a normal life. But, you know, my parents had been told that a couple times before, and it didn't happen. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways, this part of the story I always tell, this is really almost more my parents' story than my story. I was so young, and, you know, faith of a child, I used to tell my mom, like, what are you worried about? I mean, if I pass out, I'll either wake up in heaven or the back of an ambulance. Like, either way, I'll be fine. Uh, and was genuinely like, let me go play football with my friends. It's not a big deal. Um, but, but for them, obviously, it was how do we, how do we let you know, him have a semi-normal life. And, the, and the, what, the track of this thing is there's a lot of scar tissue in your heart. There's a lot of, like, the, the, I have a cardiologist that described the heart as plumbing. Yeah. But it's a lot of electricity, too. Plumbing yes. is easy. Electricity is like witchcraft. Yeah. You know about all this, not just because of your heart, because what, what you ended up doing was... Yeah, I worked in cardiology for years. So Sold pacemakers and implantable defibrillators. Um, that was my day job. Yeah, so he knows all this. And what's going to happen over 35 years is that heart's going to... Your heart's going to wear out, and you're going to need a heart transplant. And that's where this story um, ends up pushing yes. to. Have you ever met anybody that's had a heart transplant before? Heart and liver. Heart and liver. Have you ever played that three tru two truths and a lie game? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd probably be good at that, right? I bet you win every single time. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, your folks, just to close up this first part, your folks got saved because of this. Yeah, completely. My mom uh, and my mom and dad were both... Uh, I would say partiers would be the way they would describe themselves, uh, living for the moment. Um, and my mom became saved when I was really young uh, and turned into an absolute Jesus weirdo, like the kind of people that you're like, okay, that's too much. Um, and my dad was like, okay, that's too much. Um, but then when I was five and in the Mayo Clinic, uh, his story that he tells is uh, uh, he went into the chapel one day and just said, okay, like, he's yours, and whether you take him or not, I'll still, I'll mm -hmm. still follow you. Uh, and that was the, the core of kind of... And you, he became yeah. an oak. Yeah, like. he was an absolute rock of the faith ever since. Yeah. Yeah, an elder at his church for 40, 50 years or whatever it was. And this is, this is really relevant that the, that the start of this, you were in a pretty charismatic background, which may not mean anything to anybody, but, like, your mom got a word from the Lord that you're going to be healed. 
Yeah, and she would take me to every one of those, like, every one of those people coming through town that say they're going to heal you and, you know, they come and do the stuff, and it didn't work. So. And you didn't, like, she was very firm on what that meant. You were like, heal, like, timing isn't, isn't specific yeah, I in think that growing up in that word from the Lord and what healed means isn't exactly specific either. Yeah, and there was some difficulty for me growing up in that. You know, um, I would I would argue that my church when I was younger was inappropriately charismatic, uh, and they're probably more appropriately charismatic now. Um, but like they would just take Bible verses like "By His stripes you're healed." So Matt, you're healed, and I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> like I'm, I can feel it. You know, I dropped over dead last week. It's it, I'm not. Um, and, and so that was, that was a tension for me always. And my mom had more faith than anybody ever met in my life. And she's just like, God told me he's going to heal your heart and he's going to heal your heart. So for me working through, as I got older, I kind of had to figure, okay, what is, I believe that you, you got like something here, but what does healing even mean? Is it a spiritual healing? Will it be, will I get this healed heart in heaven? I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen, you know? And, um, and you ended up thinking this was like a cosmic battle between the devil and Yeah, God I think growing him. up, that was my view of, you know, kind of coming through this church is like, God loves you, and he's for you, and the devil's out to get you, and it's like this epic fight, and, you know, God's going to win in the end, but it's probably going to be like in the fourth quarter on a trick play. Um, <laughs> like, he really wants to help you, he really wants to heal you, but he just quite can't quite yet. Um, and so that was what, that's where my faith, and I prayed every day, I mean, my entire life, Lord, heal my heart. And, you know, I would, I was like, yeah, maybe tomorrow morning's the morning I wake up and I don't have any heart problems. Or maybe this next medicine is the one that completely cures all my problems. Yeah. And, um, and that, that stuff is going to become important because we'll come back to that, but it's going to change. Like your view of God and his yes. role and all this is going to change, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So from, from 5 to 12, things were okay. At 12, you had, like, this is number three, where you went to cardiac arrest. Yeah, number three. This is the lady whose car broke down in front of your house. Yeah, and the real short version of that story is I'm swimming in the swimming pool, pass out, start singing in the deep end. My mom pulls me out. Her friend runs just in hysteria, not really know what to do, goes out to the front of our house, uh, and I, we lived in a little one-light town. I mean, maybe 20 day, cars a day would pass our house. And there's a lady there who was driving by our house that day whose car had overheated. And she had, like, a little medical bag. She trained EMTs was her job. And she had all the equipment with her. And she came running back, revived me. Uh, and then we get and load up, go to the ambulance. And then her car just needed to cool down, I guess, because she got back in and left. <laughs> um, and we only knew this story because our neighbor had talked to her, like, in the chaos afterwards. Yeah. Within the next few years, there was number four, and that was a lady that your mom was doing her hair again. Yes. She was a gym teacher. She was a gym teacher, and she had finished CPR training the week before, <laughs> and she was there. And then number five was... Um, high school basketball high school. game, uh, and uh, there were two ER nurses there that I collapsed right next to, and they revived me. Because that was a big, there was a big fight. Yeah, well, I there mean, was not a, about your going into cardiac arrest. No, there was it was a, fight, a pretty exciting. And then you went into cardiac players arrest. got in the game, and I got all excited going to cardiac arrest. And so then they revived me, and then, you know, to my chagrin, as I come, they wheel me back out. Every like word had got around what was happening, and everybody in the stands was just like sitting there waiting, like, is this kid gonna die or not? And then they wheeled me back out through, and I thought I was gonna be like smart. I'm a 17. I was gonna be a little smart aleck, and 
kind of give a little thumbs up, like, ha funny, like, I'm fine, you know. I was making a joke, because there was a like, Detroit Lions player who had recently done that, and long story. But anyway, I thought it'd be a great joke, and everybody stood up and applauded, and it was like this, I was so like, oh gosh, I was trying to be funny, and they think it's sweet. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah. And things take a turn here, because they put a defibrillator they put an automatic thing that so when you go into cardiac arrest, God doesn't have to have somebody right there. There's a defibrillator that's just going to shock your heart back into. Right. Apparently, the doctors lost faith that there would continue to be a nurse at my. <laughs> um, and they, they told you you this was funny. They told you you were the you were. Yes. Yeah, so this isn't funny actually. Yeah. At the time, I go and and it's really it was just like the paddles, right? You see the they put the paddles on and shock you. Only at the time they would basically the paddles were these patches and they'd saw them right to the outside of your heart. And uh, the defibrillator was very new. It was being put in in several adults. And, and my, I remember my mom asking, like, have they ever done this on a, a kid? And the doctor was like, well, no, he'll be the first. And she's like, he's going to be the first? And they're like, well, there was one, one other. But no, <laughs> he'll be the first. <laughs> so in other words, I was, I, was, I was the first to survive. I feel bad, like, that that's funny. But it is, it's not funny. Oh, it gets worse <laughs> when we're. Yeah, yeah. There, but, like, that's the life you lived. Yeah, I mean, in, in a little foreshadowing, sitting at waiting for a heart transplant, you're just waiting for somebody to die. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a lot to run. I mean, you've, you've got to be a, you've got to have figured out what's God's role in all of this, in order to even keep your sanity through a lot of this stuff. And that defibrillator kind of sent you into a dark place because it would go off, it would hurt, and you started like wondering. Yeah, I mean, I think this is when it really became, I mean, into my teen years, there was kind of a normal, right, you go from, you start to lose the faith of a child, I would say, Um, and this is when it really became my battle, Um, when at any moment I could get a giant shock, and and it's not an exaggeration, when you see on TV and they shock somebody and they kind of bounce off the table, uh, it it hurts, and... You said it feels like a, maybe like a horse kicking you Like a horse kicking, or, yeah, but it almost feels like it's coming from inside of you. So if a horse could be inside of you kicking you, kind of exploding out, um, and you don't know when it's going to happen, and you're just kind of constantly waiting. And so, yeah, there, that was when it, it got pretty dark for me, I would say. Um, I, I, I say that there was one night in particular I very much remember that I would not have left my parents' basement again had there been a bathroom down there. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm not walking up those stairs. Like, it, like, even just the idea of my heart rate increasing by a little bit that, you know, that, is that going to make this thing go off? And, um, yeah, so there, there was a, there was, that's a whole other story in that, but yeah. how I kind of wrestled through the, that time. So we're going to skip through a lot of stuff there. Let me, I'll just pass. Like, you ended up going to, to school, to college, good experience in college. Yes. This thing would go off every six or 12 months, and that was bad. But, like, you had a relative, you got a, you got a good job. You were selling medical devices. Yeah, selling defibrillators um, and pacemakers. You had to have... And this is in the progression of your heart. Where now you had the tricuspid valve replaced because it the scar tissue. Yes, I was what 22, I think, when I had a tricuspid yeah. valve replaced. So yeah. things kind of yeah. cruise along. We'll get Ashley in here. You guys met in 2007 at church. Yeah. Um, you were from another small town. Yes. Um, a couple small towns over, <laughs> and um, but then but so you met, but you saw him speak at church, but yeah. then you didn't really meet for like another year later. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you met, you had a boyfriend? Yeah. And Matt took care of that. (laughs) It was a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I won. Um, 
Good job. Um, and you guys got married in 2008. Yes. Right? So it was quick. We didn't what? date for very long. Yeah, what did you know? I, so I had what, what did they tell you? So <laughs> I had read, so he has a book of the first 28 years of his life. So I had read that. Um, and his mom would say to me, are you sure you want to do this? Um, oh, yeah, you got to hold that close to your mouth. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. I think I was, I always say God tricked me. He didn't have any cardiac arrests when we were dating. Not that we dated for very long. Um, but I thought, am I not going to marry him because of his health? And the thought of somebody else marrying him just didn't sit well with me, so. Stud. Stud. <laughs> Did you hear what Ruth, what Ruth Graham said about Billy Graham? Because he traveled so much. Mm. They asked her if that bothered her. She said, half the time with Billy Graham is more than all the time with another man. <laughs> there you I'm go. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> what's going on? That's what's no. going on right here. Um, did you know, well, you didn't really know you were going to have a transplant, necessarily. No. no I, so we, that wasn't really on No, it was not on our radar whatsoever. No. What was your first experience? Yeah, it was a few months after we were married. Uh, we were in the movie theater. There was an intense scene. and uh, Who was in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> it was not an intense scene. It was a Kirk Cameron movie. There's, Kirk Cameron has never the, done What was that one? Fireproof scene. or whatever? That Something was one like of those that. ones. Oh, yeah. It was like, yeah. oh, this is... Yeah, I'll, I'll, you just couldn't handle it. I'll, I'll refrain <laughs> from what I really want to say. <laughs> but it wasn't that bad of an incident. No, it wasn't bad because it was dark. I don't know if he fully even passed out. It was so fast. So it was like a good it was Barely even a cardiac injury. arrest. Barely even Just to be clear, a good incident for her is bad for me. <laughs> I'd rather pass out yes. and not feel it. But right. then that's a lot scarier for her. Right. So, you know, you got this is where the stories start to diverge a little bit. We, have yeah. we can only understand each other to a certain degree. Yeah. I think you also said some people were laughing at you because they thought you were scared of the movie <laughs> and you're having a Yeah, like she's arrest. bawling, you crying. Just have no idea. And they're like, <laughs> they're like laughing at us because they thought we're scared of the movie. Uh, um, and then, and then uh, I don't know how long after that, but mm -hmm. you had a, a surgery for an ablation, yep. which is uh, correcting the electrical rhythm stuff. And they basically, yeah, they basically said this could be a, a cure. Yeah. A potential cure for this. And that, that um, if you guys remember Jess Downing, I think she had an ablation that took an hour or two. Like, it just wasn't, you may not even remember it, you know what I mean? But it took 12 hours because of all the stuff that had happened. Yeah, and the joke in our family was we were always the first one in the waiting room and the last ones to leave, no matter what was going on. When that's the joke in your family. <laughs> this is like Joseph. The best thing he's got going is he's good friends with the warden. <laughs> like, here's the funny part. Um, and the guy came out and said, oh, yeah, it went well, but you, you went back and he's in cardiac arrest yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and this did this, like, this changed the defibrillator thing. So your warning went from. Yeah, it really, it, it changed things. So uh, I had fewer episodes, but then I used to have a good 30 to 45 seconds notice before I'd pass out. So I could still drive. I could still function normally. Um, and this changed it to where I'd have two to five seconds of notice before I could pass out. Um, and so no driving, 
uh, which that meant no, I couldn't, they wouldn't let me work. And uh, you were very good at your job. <coughs> yes, I was. And like You it. don't need to keep pointing that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, 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 I mean, that's what I, how I spent my 20s. You know, I was 70, 60, 70 hours a week going full throttle, and I absolutely loved the competition and the pace and the, yeah, and so I went from going 100 miles an hour to going zero like that. Um, it was rough. <laughs> yeah. It was rough for her, probably. Yeah. Yeah, because it was it was just, boom, you're at home. And we lived in a rural environment. I mean, this is before Uber. Uh, this is before, you know, I had no, if I wanted to leave, to go anywhere, uh, I had to get a ride. Somebody had to take me. Yeah. Um, you found out this time you can't have kids because of this, the, you end up adopting the girls. Yes. Um, but then you're, you know, you're being trained on what to do, how long to wait for that thing to go off before you call somebody and say, hey, can you come revive my husband with two, it's six month old and a year and a half old, like wondering, how's this gonna, so that's life. Um, we'll go to, I guess this, maybe this is 2011. You have a, an incident um, that is just it, it really in the progression of things where you're you said you were in the ambulance and you keep passing in and out and you can hear the tone of voice of the people that are taking care of you you know this is bad um, I think they said they shocked you 13 times during that yeah yeah that was the one where and because I was in the medical field you you know like you hear the voice well first of all I knew like the whole progression so I would know like oh they're giving this drug and I'm like and I'd wake back up and kind of go oh like they don't do that until like way late, <laughs> right? You start with this drug and then if things get worse and it doesn't work, you keep going this way. And so I'd wake up and, I, and I'd hear, feel it going again and then I'd slowly start to pass out and then I'd wake up again and then I see, you know, just panic in the back of the ambulance and stuff being thrown and they're in a, a code situation. And yeah, and I, th I think I asked you, I started thinking after we talked the first time about this, like that it must be weird to have, how many ever times you like, the lights were going out and you thought this, this could be it. But it wasn't weird for you because it's just been your life. That one, you're right. It, it was, yeah, I think, and that one was different because there was a more time to dwell on it, I think. And it, it I, there was one, uh, one time I had where I feel my heart take off racing and I just get flushed with fear. And I mean, you're just, your body just kind of freaks out. And I'm going, oh, I'm on, here comes the defibrillator shock. Here it comes, here it comes. And it's like, uh-oh, why isn't the defibrillator going off? And so you go from this, like, scared out of your mind that you're going to get shocked to it flips to like, and then as the like the world starts to get black, to like, oh no, I hope this thing works, mm. you know. So the the fear flips real <laughs> flipped real quick, um, and and then passed out, um, and then it shocked me. And then as I'm waking back up, also waking up is not like waking up from sleep. I mean, you're putting like you don't know where you are, you don't know what's been going on. So it takes a second to kind of put it all together. Um, and so this time in the back of an ambulance that it was just again and again and again, I, I, that was the one time I remember going, okay. Like, I remember specifically thinking, okay, they're losing me. And th this, like, and just kind of having, and then I'd pass out and I'd come back together and I'd kind of remember where I was at and going, and then I remember just kind of, I think, saying the Lord's Prayer. Um, and then I just started worshiping, I think. Mm. Um, what was the song that I, that I? I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Um, isn't that the one you? Yeah, I walked on the aisle to it, and I yeah. sang it a lot. Yeah, and that was the one that was just, that's all I could do, is just lay there and the, wait. In the, 
in the hospital room, that one got a little crazy. Like, people are praying in tongues, which that can be fine. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a little out of it, thinks he's a prophet. Yeah, yeah. Really? After that 13 cardiac arrest, he was in the hospital, and he had some medicine interactions, but he was convinced there were demons messing with him, um, and his parents are playing, praying in tongues. And me, this little Baptist girl, has no idea what's going on. Uh, and then he starts seizing. He starts having a seizure. And then after all that, the doctor says... He broke his back. Yeah, but he also said oh. seizures aren't... <laughs> yeah, so I have to set up the scene. I mean, he's seizing. It's lasting quite a while. Um, and so his parent. I mean, there's nurses, doctors. I mean, the room is full. And his parents are speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, and I'm just on the floor praying and begging God that he just wouldn't take him today. And, uh, and he stopped seizing, and about 15 minutes later, the doctor says, they're not usually life-threatening. <laughs> so that was fun seeing them in, like, the lunchroom later on <laughs> that day. <laughs> um, so this is 2011. What else happened in 2011? That was, the year we, that was the year we planted the church. <laughs> <laughs> That's funnier than that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is really likes this one. <laughs> they yeah. planted a church in the midst of that. Uh, I do think I have a picture from this. I think that first picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right what my, that my, bra my back brace. Girls are little. And, and you, we'll take a second here because you had really evolved spiritually over over the previous 10 years or so yeah i think uh my faith had i, I grew like i said growing up in the, the church i did i i walked away from that with like there is no doubt god loves me there is no doubt god wants the best for me um but it was kind of like is he really in control though um and as as kind of from college up until really this point started to really um i remember just like reading through the entire new testament like what does the Bible say about suffering and God's role in it? Like, where is God in all of this? And just coming to the conclusion that, oh, God is completely and totally in control. Um, and I could talk about that all day. But, yeah. Well, um, you but mean that, Romans 28 and 29. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm queued up here because that's... Yeah. So Romans 28 and 29. And then when I grew up, Romans 28 was always like a staple. Like, God works all things for the good for those who have been called according to his purposes. Like, he's going to make it good. Um, and that was the verse I clung to and I think even my mom would cling to. Um, but it wasn't until this point in life that I read verse 29, um, which is basically that, which says that that good thing is that we'd be conformed into the image of Jesus. Um, and that's a real mental shift to go, wait, the good thing is actually being more like Jesus. It's not necessarily being healthy, being happy, being wealthy, being whatever. Um, and so, and I think I had the opportunity to like that verse at one point in my life was like something my mom told me is true. That's like, yeah, maybe. Until um, then, like, you start to see some good things coming of the suffering, and you start to go, oh, I, this actually might be true, um, to getting to the place where I am now, where it's just an unshakable, like, I believe in that as much as I believe in gravity, um, that God is in control, and he is working things for my benefit. I don't always like them. Uh, they are definitely not always easy. But I can't look back at, like, and I remember the first realization I had was, like, just after college, one day going like, I think I'd be a real jerk without these heart problems, uh, or more of a jerk. Um, 
and just recognizing how they kept me humble and built character and just how the good that came through some of the suffering. And as that, you know, that just continued to build and build and build over the years. Yeah. Um, and we'll come back to that at the end. That is the story. Like, it's, I mean, where was God in it? It's right there. And you can see in a lot how he used it in the, in the midst of that. Then 2012, you had a tri, the tricuspid valve replaced again. And again, this is like, it's just, it's not, you're not meant to have this stuff done to your heart over and over and over again. Um, but you didn't expect what happened in 2015. You, sent, you went to a routine checkup. Yeah, I went to a routine checkup, and they said, I think it's about time we start talking about tra heart transplant. And you thought. And I was like, this is awesome. And you thought. What? Why would we do that? Like, <laughs> that does not sound like a good idea. Yeah, and I was, terrible. I was pretty excited because I was like, this will be awesome. I can be, like, normal for the first time, right? I can play sports, and I can do fun things. And I thought, if you make it through the surgery, because you almost didn't last time. And this little thing that I can't, we were doing this that night, and she was, like, crying, and I literally got mad at her. <laughs> for crying because I was like, this is gonna be good. What is wrong with you? Mm. Um, and the wheel, and things did start to go, the wheels started I to fall I kid you off. not, a month later, it just started going downhill. And like, you couldn't walk up steps. There's trips to the hospital in the middle of the night. You start managing your magne magnesium and potassium, like really specific levels, like just to fine tune things. Um, the University of Michigan had, had worked you up, but they decided they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, basically said you're too high risk to do the transplant. Um, uh, and so then I contacted Cleveland Clinic, uh, and they were like, nope, no, if you of them turns you down, we're not touching you like either. The best of the best. Yeah, I mean, the those are both. Day, no one's doing this for you at this point. Yeah, you, you realize, like, I was such a weird moment in my life when I, the doctors look at me and like, yeah, we, we can't do the transplant. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? And they just were like, we, we can't help you. And uh, so it's 100% it's up to you to find somebody who can and who will, which isn't, I just I think it, that's kind of how the whole medical system works. And I think most of us don't think of it that way. It's like once you get in, they're just going to take care of you. I, I, I just, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And, and so the, I just took it upon myself to call Cleveland Clinic. And I literally was like, hey, I need a heart <laughs> transplant. Can you do it? <laughs> I called the heart transplant office, and they're like, well, what's the story? And I told them that U of M turned me down, and the lady's like, oh, we've never accepted anybody that U of M's turned down. She's like, I wouldn't even bother coming down here. Mm -hmm. So then I called, did, my, did my research and found that Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles was the number one place in the country that did the most. Um, and this is, gets a little crude, but the reality is they have to keep a 90% success rate at year one, or else the government will shut their, heart, their program down. And so... The, the truth of it is, if you're doing 50 heart transplants a year, there's a certain number of people you can lose. If you're doing 100 transplants a year, you can lose more people, so you can be riskier. So my thought was, let me go to whoever's doing the most. They can be riskier. They can afford to lose a patient, um, and maybe they'll do it. So I call them up and was like, gave them the same spiel, and they said, sure, we'll book you an appointment. You'll fly out. We'll spend two days working you up. You'll go home. If we decide to take you, you move to L.A., and you'll get a heart transplant. This is around the time where you just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I started having um, just really like intense mental picture, 
scary mental pictures, things that have happened, things that could have happened. Um, and one day I just said to Matt, I think you need to take me to like a, a psych ER because I'm scared that I'm going to lose my mind and it's not going to come back. Mm. Just to give an idea of like the pressure that is involved in this, there was moving this forward into 2016, there was an incident that um, you talked about where you were in the hospital at, Mich at the University of Michigan. You're about an hour away. They call you. You're, you're laying in bed with the girls in the morning, and they say, your husband's been down for about 33 minutes, and we're working on him, but we need to know if you have a ride and how quickly you can get here, yeah. which sounds like... Yeah, how quick can you get here so we can stop working on them, him? Or uh, my thought was, my thought was they're going to get him back, but for 33 minutes, there's not going to be any brain activity. So then I'm going to have to make a pretty hard choice, which we had already talked about that, and I knew what the choice would be. So. And he was okay. <laughs> but you yeah, woke up. I woke, you woke up, up with yeah, I woke up, and I, I was intubated at the time, and I remember looking over, and the chief of cardiology for the University of Michigan had a folding chair pulled up right next to my bed and was sitting there like this, just staring at me. <laughs> and I remember looking at them and going, oh, that's not good. <laughs> like, the, the joke we always had is if you're in the hospital and you can't get a hold of a doctor, that's really, really good. They're not worried about you. You're fine. Just get okay. But when the doctors are around, that's when you can be nervous. And when you wake up and he's like, I got nothing better to do but sit here and think about what's going on with you, you know you're in pretty deep. And that... And the, then you went to L.A.? Yeah. We, yeah, it was a... It, yeah, Matt was bound and determined to get to L.A. at that point. And I wasn't so, going to stay there and die. Obviously. Like, but he's like, get me checked out of the hospital, get me on a plane, we're going to get there. And I'm thinking, I'm not taking you yeah, on an airplane. Yeah, because this is early like, July, and it was like two weeks away, I had, to, I had my appointment in L.A. I'm so like, I like, got to We got to get there. So one day I saw his doctor, and I ran him down, and I was like, Matt thinks he's going to get on a commercial airplane do you think that's going to happen? And he's like, no. I'm like, okay, can you tell him? Because he's not listening to me. Like, So they end up arranging an air ambulance to take us from the University of Michigan to Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. We got a couple pictures of your sweet ride. Yeah, if you ever get the chance to fly private, I would highly recommend it. <laughs> Particularly, and maybe this may be an inappropriate joke, but particularly, I had five broken ribs from the CPR, so I had morphine on board too. So I used to, I used to joke, tell people in LA, I arrived here on a private jet with drugs, you know, just like, <laughs> just like all the famous people. So. I didn't get any morphine though. <laughs> yeah. um, you guys had, you had researched, found a great church in LA. They, it's when when you first got there, you. You were in the hospital. You went to church. Yeah. They called you up afterwards, prayed for you. Someone gave you the keys to their house or car, said, we're going to be gone. You, you're going to need this. Yeah. I mean, really did a great job of taking care of you. Yeah. You ended up getting out of the hospital, and then... and then. Yeah, they basically decided, they, they put me on, it was about two or three weeks, kind of getting me stable, put me on the transplant list, said, we're going to do your transplant, and sent me home to a house she had picked out in L.A., uh, and said, wait there, and you should have a transplant within a year or two. Um, and, then a, and then a few weeks 
later, I guess, or a few days yeah. later, two, pastor's two house weeks later. in LA. Um, and this was your worst fear. Yeah. So my worst fear was he's going to pass out. The defibrillator's not going to fire. The girls are going to be there. And I'm going to have to give him CPR and I'm going to fail. And all of those things happened. Except for I didn't fail. Well, no. you kind of got bailed out. <laughs> so this we're is at, number seven. Yeah. On the count we're at our, our friend pastor's house and he, Matt, falls on the floor um, and um, I call 911, turn him over, start CPR. But I think I was more just yelling more than anything. And um, all of a sudden, I looked up in the doorway, and there was two men there. Um, one was a doctor who lived nearby. His wife heard my screaming and said, you should go help. Another was another doctor that uh, one of our friend's little girls ran to his house and grabbed him. And about a quarter mile down the street was our like annual fair, and so there were firemen and EMTs there. So we had two doctors and an ambulance there within like a minute this time. And this was a little funny because they... So the two men walk, get, come into the door and they start doing CPR and um, after they did some hands-only CPR, Matt kind of came to two and, and he says, air, like he needs air. And both the guys stop and they look at each other like, who's going to do this part? And I'm like, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So that gets you to the top of the list or on the top row of the yeah, list. Yeah, and they put, the we go to the hospital, come back in the next day. You're 1A on the transplant list. It'll be a matter of weeks. And this is a weird thing to, with heart transplants, but there was a holiday coming up. What holiday would it have been? Labor Day coming up, and they're like, hopefully it'll be this weekend, because transplants, heart transplants, like, spike on the weekend, on the holidays. Yeah. Wow. Um, because people do dumb things with alcohol, and, and so you get a lot more heart transplants at every holiday. Yeah. Um, and so they were like, hopefully, and this weekend, over Labor Day weekend, we'll get you a transplant. This is a whole nother story. Is the six, there's six months in the hospital. There's, they... It did not happen that weekend. Yeah, you're... Um, you're a tall, skinny guy. Tall guys usually have big hearts. That's what you need. But tall guys are usually way more than you, and you, and they have, and so they they normally have livers that are too big. And so whether what they end up doing is like they'll get a donor who has who's passed and is yes. they're, they're saving the organs, and then they'll put Matt the the transplant patient under and get them ready, and then open up the person and find out is this going to work. And twice they did that, and we're like, no, it wouldn't work. So twice they woke you up, and you're like, and you're like no, it didn't happen. And you said before the second one, you guys recorded some conversations because you thought, this is a good chance I'm not going to see him again. Yeah. I mean, I just, that's mind-blowing. Like, that's just, thankfully, we don't have to imagine that, you know, and what it's like to live in that. Um, there are a few pictures from this, like, I think this was around the time of the... Yeah, that was attempt. the night before the first one, I think. Yeah. 
a little fun in the hospital there. Um, you, there's something else that like you didn't bring up, and it, maybe it was too hard, but you couldn't watch sports during all this time. <laughs> I don't remember this one. <laughs> it was on your Facebook thing. There's yeah, a there's a Facebook thing called yeah. no, the Noble Story oh. or something like that, and I went down that rabbit hole one yeah, day. Yeah, like I said, I, you uh, watch I forgot about this for like three months. That's a whole nother Sunday. <laughs> yeah, like I would just because I'd be like too okay, stressed out. Yeah. yeah. Like, if I cared about the team, I couldn't watch it. Yeah. Because I'd get, like, yeah, I'd get excited. Except for we did watch the World Series, because... Uh... No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> so you get, we get to December, you get the match. Yeah. Um, finally, you go in for surgery, you go home and take a Xanax. Just one. Because it was going to, it took 19 hours, right? Yeah, it was a 19-hour surgery. They started at like 9 p.m. And they would call every couple hours, old hearts out, new hearts in, old livers out, new livers in. Everything's going all right. I did go through all those Facebook posts mm. of like, yeah, who uh, your, your mom and your sister, I think, were updating a lot. Mm -hmm. And they get done with it. Um, and this, the surgeon says, Cautious, cautiously optimistic. He later said, hardest surgery he's ever done. And, but for, for nine days, he's not him. Yeah, for nine days, he's just in a different world, I guess. Um, not really moving. Um, he didn't know who I was. The nurse came in, said, how long have you guys been married? And I said, nine years, and he kind of looked and like just had this look of like, okay, that's who she is. Um, and so during this time, they were just trying to figure out what was going on, if there was brain damage. Um, and they didn't really give me any answers, just had to wait. Um, and did the, hey, did the video get queued up? I put the video in, is that okay? better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> it's on the internet. Hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Um, this was, day, I think, day nine. Yeah. You get to the hospital, put your hand on the door, and you cannot do it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. All right, I, I'm going to leave the house to go to the hospital, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this today. So your mom and sister come up and give you a call. Yeah. Get some tissues. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, 
We have a, a couple, um, there are a couple other pictures. There's one of you hooked up to all the stuff. There's, this is a startling picture. Um, this is what happens when you're in the hospital for six months. And then this is. That was, this was actually a month after that last picture. This is right before I'm getting ready to go home. Okay. Um, and then this is what a date looks like in the hospital. And this was during those nine days where I wasn't really there. She would just sit there and wait. So, you, you come home a month later, um, you're better. Like, you, you play tennis a couple times a week. You yeah. drive, you walk upstairs, you, you have a pretty normal life. Yeah. Um, but... It's really weird, the, the Mount Everest yeah. analogy. I think the best way to explain what I was feeling when I got home, um, everybody's sitting there like, isn't this amazing, isn't this great? And I was not really feeling it. Um, and, and the best analogy I came up with is I imagine, like, you knew, like, it was your purpose in life to climb Mount Everest, right? By this point in time, I, I had recognized, like, God has me in this for a reason, right? Like... And the Apostle Paul, when he's got the thorn in the flesh, asked three times for God to take it away. And God's like, no, effectively, you're better with it. And, like, I had come to that point of, like, this, this heart problem is good for me. And I used to be able to get up in the morning, and if I could just, like, live my day in the hospital and not complain, it was, like, glorifying to God. Like, thousands of people on this Facebook group and, like, all the nurses and doctors, they're all, like, it just, they're all, like, well, how are you doing this? What is going on? There was a purpose and a mission in what I was doing every day. Um, and, and so it, it, the, the best way I could explain it is like, it'd be like setting out to climb Mount Everest. And it is the worst, most difficult, grueling journey you've ever had in your life. You know, you've lost fingers to frostbite, but, but you finally make it to the top and you're, you know, metaphorically closer to God than you've ever been in your life, depending on him for every single step of the journey. And a couple months later, you're sitting at home in your lazy boy chair and everybody's saying, isn't this so much better? It's like, well, it's easier. But I, I'm not sure it's better. Um, and I, I never imagined that I'd have to learn how to be content when healthy. Right? It's kind of like that thing we do, like, hey, if I can be ten content when I'm poor, certainly I'll be content when I'm rich. If I can be content when I'm sick, oh, certainly I'll be content when I'm healthy. But it's two different things. Um, and I had gotten really good at being content in the middle of suffering. And, and there's a lot of ways where it's actually better and easier um, in the midst of suffering. Like, I, those six months in the hospital, like, I had to literally and practically depend on Jesus to get myself through a day. Like, I l actually had to trust in Jesus with my own physical well-being every 
Like, I couldn't do it every hour. Like, it's minutely, you know? And now, after the transplant, I can go days and not even think of God, and I'm fine. I'm like, is that better? And so, as the kind of everybody was telling me how great this was, I was really like, you know, I really resonated with, with men that go off to war and then come back and they want to re-enlist. That's what I felt like at that time of like, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something, like, I want to fight. I want to, I want to have purpose in this again. Um, and so here I was in this place where I was like, I've gotten everything I've ever prayed for. Everything. You know, be two beautiful kids, a wife, uh, had the, fulfilled all my career ambitions, got a new heart I'd been praying for for 40 years. And it didn't, it wasn't better. Um, and I, I, I think the beauty of that gift to, like, come to that realization of, like, oh, wait, like, all the, the changing in circumstances isn't going to make life better. I remember when I was in the hospital, I remember seeing, like, a blog post or something where it pointed out that in the, the apostles never once asked in their prayers. They never prayed for a change of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have in James, you know, if you're sick, go to the elders and ask them to pray for you. That's kind of a change of circumstances. But, like, I thought about how much of my prayers were just God changed the circumstances around me uh, and how little that, like, was the prayer of the men in the Bible. Um, and, and so I went from, as a kid, where I never missed a day for praying, God, give me a new heart, to I quit praying for it because I didn't need it anymore mm. before the transplant. And then when I didn't need it anymore, he gave it to me. And then I had to learn how to be content. And, and, and it's a whole different way of, like, how do you depend on God when you don't really need to, if, I, if I'm honest, right? Like, practically. And, um, and yeah. Could, yeah, the, there would have been a conversation about this, like, what does it mean then? Because I think, I don't think anybody can relate to what you're talking about. I think almost everybody can relate to going through a difficult time where you really needed to depend on God because you were, either something was happening to you or you engaged yourself in something that required some sacrifice. And then in hindsight, you're like, oh man, that was really good. And I had a conversation with a guy in Lowe's who missed being in Iraq and didn't like his cushy existence. And a guy from Africa years ago who said, God's gift to Africa is her poverty because she has to depend on God. And those are, but but when we talked about this, you can't go looking, you can't just go looking for, you can't put it on people. Yeah, I think that you, because you can also get the air of like, okay, because I went through this afterwards. I'm like, okay, suffering's better. So, like, I need to make my kids suffer, <laughs> like, right? But the problem with that, like, is I'm not God. I don't know how to push. I, and I can't even do it with myself either. Like, I can't push myself into suffering. I don't know if I'm just hurting my, like, it's, it's pointless at that point. And so, it, what really, I think I came to the realization of, like, the biggest blessing I was ever given was I couldn't walk away from my struggles. Like, how many times are we suffering and we just leave. We walk out the door of it, you know? And, and, and what a gift it was for me. Like, the thing I was running from was my literal own heart. Like, I couldn't get away from it. And that used to, oh, man, I had some conversation with God about that. I mean, a few times of, like, just give me a break. Just a few, just give me a break from this. But it was always here and always with me. And then, and I think that's what I look back in retrospect of, like, that actually was the biggest blessing. Because I would have walked away. I would have walked away from it so fast. I would have. If I would have given been given a choice, do you want to do you want to walk this road or not? Like, I'm not picking that. 
Um, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. Like, I really genuinely believe that I'm the lucky one. In the and I, I would have said that the day before the transplant. You know, I that that's why I was the lucky one because I got to go through all that hard stuff. Um, and so I think the it, it's hard when you try to like set out and make yourself suffer. That yeah, but but it, I think I just you ask ourselves how many times are we running from it and skirting it when we when there's an opportunity to depend on Jesus in the midst of that that we're that that's what we're actually running from. There are a million more things that we could share. Um, we're gonna we're gonna stop there. Can you thank these guys for sharing this story? One, one last quick thing. Uh, our small group was going to meet today at church here after church just to kind of anybody. But if you all want to come by, go grab some lunch, come bring it back here, and we're going to hang out and just talk about this, answer any more questions if anybody else wants to hear any more of the story. Yeah, so. hear more of the story. Hear more of the story. Um, we're going to continue to worship. We have communion and the things that, that hit me in, um, in this story when it comes to communion or um, Matt said he didn't, the blessing was that he didn't have a choice, that he, he had to stay in the suffering. Um, it, there's just so much of that story that is the gospel, like fits with the gospel, that Jesus had the choice to escape his suffering and he didn't and suffered on our behalf so that we would be the ones that would benefit from it. Um, and so what, what, what we celebrate um, when we're taking communion is that we have a God who, he didn't opt out of suffering. And I'm not a student of world religions. I am in part, like over the years, with my own journey in faith and with doing this for a number of years. I don't think there's another God who ch chooses to suffer on behalf of his people. And whatever it is that you're going through, um, what we do here in remembering the body that was broken for us and the blood that was poured out of it for us, remember that he's right with you in the midst of it. And I mentioned this last week, and Matt alluded to this week. God, like, he loves you completely, and he is in complete control of whatever's going on with you. And the, and the gospel, this, the body and blood of Christ, is what lets us hold that tension together. Father, thanks for Matt and Ashley and for their story and for um, the ways that you've worked in through them, um, for their obedience to you, Lord. Uh, there's Matt saying, like, every day, just not complaining, was bringing glory to God. And both of them, just their faithfulness to you, the way you've used that story in so many people's lives, and a story that no one would choose on the front end, but for him to be able to say on the back end, I'm the one that was blessed. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are with us in the midst of whatever we're suffering, Lord, and help us not to try and escape the sacrifices that following you calls for, Lord, but to seek you uh, in the middle of them. Love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.